Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 3rd, 2014, and my guest is Robert Frank of Cornell University. He's the author of numerous books, including The Darwin Economy. Bob, welcome back to Econ Talk. Yeah, nice to be back, Russ. Today, we're going to talk about Ronald Coase, drawing on your discussion in the Darwin economy of Coase. He passed away last year at the age of 102. He was a guest on Econ Talk in 2012. And last year, uh, Don Boudreaux appeared here to discuss Coase's work. And I thought it'd be interesting to do a similar conversation with you. And you have a very different philosophical perspective uh, compared to Don or mine. We're going to focus on the insights from Coase's work on externalities his 1959 piece, Federal Communications Commission in the Journal of Law and Economics, and his 1960 piece in that same journal, The Problem of Social Cost. Now, Bob, you point out that before Coase, and I I just want to say, listeners, um, you may be wondering why we're doing another podcast on the same topic, besides the fact that that Bob has a very different perspective philosophically than, than my own. The other reason is that it's an incredibly deep and rich concept, the ideas that Coase put forward in these in these two pieces. And uh, to quote uh, Bob, you say, despite the incredible volume of attention it has received, scholars haven't yet grasped its full significance. And I would include myself in that group. I don't know about yourself, but uh, I thought it's very worthwhile to to come at it another time because uh, – yeah, there, there's a lot there, and, and none of us has, has really plumbed the full depth of it. But, uh, yeah, it's amazing. I think some of the interpretations that persist of his work out there uh, just don't seem at all consistent with what we know about his beliefs and, and, and writings on other topics. And, and I hope we'll be able to shed some light on that. So, Bob, you point out that before Coase – Uh, There was a tendency to look at negative externalities, that is, cases where one person's action caused harm to another. That's what a negative externality is. So my action doesn't just affect me and its costs and benefits, but people beside myself. A lot of people tended and still do tend to look at those kind of situations as there being a perpetrator and a victim. Uh, But that's not Coase's perspective. Explain. Not at all. In fact, that's the chapter title I chose for the discussion of course, in my book, Perpetrators and Victims, uh, there was a bad guy and a victim uh, in each of these cases. Coase's famous example in the Federal Communications article published in 1959 involved uh, a doctor and a confectioner, uh, a candy maker. The, the confectioner was first on the scene. He had machinery that made candy in his quarters. The doctor uh, opened an office in the same building. Uh, they coexisted without incident for many years. Then the doctor built a new examination room adjacent to the, the candy maker's machinery, and he found that the vibrations and noise prevented him from doing his work properly. And so he sought a court injunction trying to prevent the confectioner from making the noise that was interfering with his work. And in fact, he prevailed uh, in the court decision. Coase said uh, 
wait a minute, uh, there, where did the presumption come from that the doctor has the right to a noise-free environment? Uh, it does seem that the confectioner is harming the doctor. That's clear enough. But what if we tell the, the confectioner, no, you can't do what you're doing? Uh, then we're harming him. So no matter whether you turn left or you turn right in a case like that, you're going to cause harm. Kosa's insight, and I think it's the real enduring uh, insight he had, was that it's in the interests of both parties, the doctor and the confectioner, to solve this mutual problem that they have, uh, namely that their two activities aren't, aren't compatible fully with one another, to solve that problem in the least costly way. Any other uh, way of proceeding would leave open the possibility of making both parties better off. So, so who's the guilty party? That's, that's the wrong question to ask. The question is, how can this problem be solved in the cheapest way? And there, Co saw that the, the, the law made no difference if they could talk to each other. And that's what I think the, the people who don't like government regulation in general uh, saw as an idea to celebrate. Look, if the doctor could talk to the confectioner, uh, then they could reach an agreement, even if the confectioner were not held liable for the the noise damage, if it were cheaper for the confectioner to solve the problem, say, by putting soundproofing on his machine, than it would be for the doctor to move to a new location, if that were the best option for him, then the doctor could pay the confectioner to install the soundproofing uh, if if it were cheaper for the doctor to move, then the doctor could move. So without any attempt uh, for, for the government to get involved, the, the problem would be resolved efficiently. That is to say, the cheapest solution would be adopted by the two parties. Uh, Coast, so when, however, when, you, when you say the doctor could move, he'd want to move because it, it, that's cheaper than bribing the candy maker to put up more uh, soundproofing to put up the soundproofing. Yeah, if, in that if, case, if, if that's the government, true. if the government doesn't intervene, if they tell people you can do whatever you want, then the confectioner doesn't have to install soundproofing. If it's cheaper for him to install soundproofing than it is for the doctor to move, then the doctor would find it in his interest to pay the confectioner to install soundproofing. He would do that because the alternative would be to incur even greater costs by moving. Uh, if it were cheaper to move than to have the confectioner install soundproofing, then the doctor would just move. Either way, we would get the cheapest solution, which is the one we want. So so I think people seized on that example to say, oh, look, here's an externality, and people can resolve it efficiently all by themselves. It doesn't matter whether the government has a noise regulation uh, here. We can We can do quite nicely without that. And if you come to that conclusion, it means you didn't read the rest of the article. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, so, Co so carry on. Coase uh, was very clear in his piece, uh, and and if you read the broader context of his early work, it's even more clear that he did not believe that in general people could reach easy solutions uh, in through private negotiation about such problems. His his very first work conducted when he was a young man on a visit to the U.S. from from England was. Uh, of detailed study of why we have firms in the first place. Why don't we just do everything through individual contracts in, in the spot market? It's because 
all the contracts you'd have to write would be so cumbersome to negotiate that uh, it's just much cheaper to have a firm organize them all internally and then give you a final product that you can buy. So, so he saw that negotiation was very impractical much of the time, and he sought to understand institutions, laws, social norms, all, all, all manner of, of institutional arrangements as attempts to economize on negotiation costs, make negotiation unnecessary. And what, what that means here is that if you're thinking about how to define rights, who should have the right, the doctor to a quiet environment or the, the confectioner to make noise as he pleases, well, you, you've just got to see what agreement they would have reached uh, if they had been free to negotiate with one another and then have the law try to set up property rights and rules so as to steer them to that agreement. So, so in this interesting example that he offered, if it had been cheaper for the doctor to move then, and, and they can't negotiate, then having the confectioner not be liable for noise damage results in the efficient solution. The doctor would have every incentive just to move on his own, and that's the cheapest solution. If the cheaper solution were for the confectioner to install soundproofing, however, then you would want to have the, the law say he's liable for damages because now it's not practical for the two to negotiate. The doctor can't bribe him to install soundproofing, and he'd have to move as the best solution available to him. If the law makes the doctor liable for noise damage, then he will install the soundproofing because it's cheaper to do that than to pay the damage that the noise would cost. So, so that that's the Coase insight. I think in its in its simplest and most general form, laws and regulations, property rights, uh, all such things should be designed in such a way to mimic the, the agreements that free people would have reached in their own interests had negotiation been practical. Now, in the middle of that, you just uh, – you mentioned the efficient solution. You also talked about the cheapest solution to the problem. Let's have a small digression because we're going to – we may end up using it later about what economists mean by efficiency. A, a lot of – in everyday language, efficiency means – a variety of things, but economists have a very specific way of, of using that phrase. Yes, I think to an economist, uh, a situation is efficient if it results in the largest possible economic surplus. Uh, an economic surplus is itself a pretty simple concept, although not without controversy of its own. So if if I'd be willing to pay uh, $100 for a radio and I can buy it for $20, then I get $80 of economic surplus by doing it. So if there's some way to rearrange things to make the total economic surplus bigger, then that situation can't be efficient. And so in this case... If you adopt the more expensive of the two ways of solving the noise problem, that's inefficient in that narrow sense. Yeah, you've wasted resources. The pie isn't as big as it might otherwise be. Right. And it's important to mention, well, I'm sure we'll come back to this later, most, if not all, discussions of efficiency tend to ignore uh, who gets which pieces of the pie, how the surplus gets divided up, which we also usually care about, especially if you're the confectioner or the uh, doctor. You care a lot about it. But if we're thinking the abstract about how to design – what kind of world we want to live in, obviously efficiency is not going to be the only thing we care about and how much we care about it may differ across people, but there's certainly a virtue in not throwing away stuff. 
and inefficiency right. means basically you've 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 lost you've lost something you've wasted a right. chance if you've done something inefficiently then what that means is that there is at least in principle a way to rearrange things so that everybody gets more of what he cares about yeah in theory but that that's and why that can't that can't be a good thing to do. Uh, what would be the possible argument in favor of a situation where people have less of what they care about? Yeah, the the proof of the pudding, though, is going so, to be how hard is it to make sure that there's a way that's practical to divide up the pie so that everybody's share is right. at least as big as it was before. So just again, to make this clear, we're talking somewhat abstractly. If we have some kind of policy change – that leads to a greater surplus, that leads to greater net output, greater production, greater value. Uh, we'd also care about whether your share of it gets larger or not, right? We, we wouldn't necessarily like a world where whether you, yeah, whether you can reach agreement to do it is often going to depend critically on how individual shares will be affected. It's not just the total that matters to people. It's how's my share going to change. The, the clearest example of that, I think, Russ, is the arguments about free trade. Uh, most economists agree that freer trade makes the surplus bigger. Uh, it may, however, make the, the surplus of certain parties smaller. So in the classical example, capital gains when you open the market to free trade and labor loses, at least in the American context. And so in principle, if the surplus gets bigger, it's possible for capital to put money into the pot and transfer it to labor in the form of tax credits or trading Training. allowances yeah. and the like, and then everybody's better off. Uh, but if if you don't do that, then labor is not irrational to vote against free trade. The They'll say, would, well, you know, and good, good that it makes the pie bigger, but my slice is smaller. Right, and the same would be true of technological change, a topic we've been in, – in, in innovation, a topic we've been talking a lot about in the last – few months here on Econ Talk, uh, smarter machines are going to make us more productive as a society. But what that does to any one of us depends on a number of factors in terms of how competitive our skills are with other with the machines and so on. Um, I would just add that in, in my book, The Choice, uh, I, having taught trade for years and the efficiency arguments in favor of it, I ultimately decided they're ultimately not very satisfying. Uh, they matter. But I don't think that's the most important. The fact that trade makes the pie as big as it possibly can be is not a very is not a convincing argument for most people, and I'm not sure it should be. Uh, economists tend to like it. I think the real reason economists like it is it's elegant. Uh, you know, you show the areas in a graph. It's great for exam questions, uh, and you sort of convince yourself. Some people do that. Oh well, it makes the pie bigger. It's good. But you'd also care about what happens to a bunch of individuals, particularly poorer individuals, lower skill individuals. So to me, the ultimately, this is a subject for another episode, but of econ talk. But to me, the the argument in favor of free trade does not rest solely on efficiency. But uh, let's let's move on. So let's come back to the point that we started this little subsection with, which is the perpetrators and the victims. So now that we've laid out Kosa's insight, why is this perpetrator victim distinction unimportant in Kosa's story? Well, because the perpetrator-victim framework just presumes without explaining why that it's the confectioner's fault here. He's the one making the noise. It's the doctor who's suffering from the noise. But Kosa's uh, insight was that the doctor's presence on the scene 
caused problems for the confectionery. His noise wouldn't have been a problem, but for the presence of the of the doctor trying to do work that was incompatible with noise. So why should one concern be elevated above the other? I mean, if the doctor had gotten there first and had made expensive investments on the basis of a presumption that there would be continued quiet and then that was disturbed, that that would be one thing, but there was no indication of that being part of the initial situation. If the if the doctor was poor uh, and the and the factory owner was rich uh, and could easily afford the cost of the the noise abatement equipment, uh, that might have been a consideration. There was nothing like that introduced into the example, so you have to explain why one interest should predominate over the other. Why is the doctor's claim to quiet more important than? the confectioner's claim to a low-cost production method, which presumably the, the noisy one would be compared to a quiet one. And your wording is that, and it's mine as well, and maybe it's in coast, that all externalities are essentially reciprocal, would be the the more productive way, useful way to think about it. Instead of a right. a, har- a victim and a perpetrator, uh, the phrase I like to use is it takes two to tango. So when you have these exactly. kind of externalities, it's better to think about them in a more abstract way as two people who are tangled up with each other, not one whose fault it is, and so on. And the more you think about these kind of problems, uh, you start seeing them in a lot of places, and we'll be talking about some of them. But you know, you start thinking about secondhand smoke, your whatever your uh, tastes are, and say movies or reading might offend me. Uh, your actions way beyond this goes way beyond confectioners and. Um, can't, and doctors, it, it deals with pollution. It deals with charity on the positive side. There's all kinds of places where externalities come, come into our lives. Now, the left did not like the Coase theorem, and neither did the libertarians in certain dimensions. Uh, what was the left's critique of Coase's insights? Oh, I think many on the left thought it uh, was tone deaf to a lot of basic moral intuitions. Well, of course, the the confect is the guilty party here. He's the one making the noise. But uh, Coase, I think, correctly described that as question-begging. You know, wh- why is he the presumed uh, uh, guilty party? We, we have to reach a judgment about what's the right thing to do here. And the right thing to do, when viewed from the perspective of each of the two actors, is to adopt the cheaper solution. And if if, if that's the the solution that has the doctor move rather than the confectioner install soundproofing, they would both want that to be the solution offered because failure to do that would mean they could slice the pie up another way so that they'd both be better off if they did it with the cheaper solution. And I want to add... So so the, the cheaper solution is in a very profound sense the right solution. It's it, so So when people say... Coase offended their moral intuitions. Well, maybe their moral intuitions didn't lead them correctly to identify the right solution in this case. I'm going to – I side with the left on this partially, and we'll come back to this later. But uh, I think in this particular case of the candy maker and the doctor, most of, most people would agree that there's nothing immoral about making candy. Uh, it's true. It looks like there's the harmer, the person causing the harm is the – is the candy maker, but I disagree with the left in this situation. I don't think there's anything 
uh, immoral the, about making candy. The real objection of the left, of course, was that this seemed to open the door for claims that government regulation of externalities isn't really necessary. That was, that was I think, the the real wellspring of criticism of Coase's piece from the left. And the libertarians had a similar um, confirmation bias problem. Why don't you explain that? You know, if you're a, a libertarian, you don't want to be interfered with. You want to do what you want to do. And and if what you want to do causes harm to others, uh, are you eager to embrace a framework that would say it might be the best thing to do to regulate you to keep you from doing that? I, I think that's a, an unhappy pill for a libertarian to swallow. So what I, I see as a practical matter is that Libertarians will invoke John Stuart Mill's harm principle. Uh, Mill, you'll recall, wrote in On Liberty that the only uh, reason the government can restrict someone's liberty of action is to prevent harm to others, by which he, of course, meant undo harm to others. And, and libertarians are fine with saying, well, yeah, you, you, the law can prohibit me from stealing my neighbor's bicycle or from hitting over the head, him over the head with a baseball bat. Uh, I can't harm him. That's I have no problem with that. But when it comes to other more subtle, indirect forms of harm, I think the the libertarian's impulse is to say, I have a right to do what I want to do, and that trumps somebody else's objection that it's causing me harm. So I, th I think the the libertarian framework is kind of a deontological framework in philosophical terms. They say there are just certain rights and principles that you can't violate no matter what the, the underlying costs and benefits say. And, and Coase's framework is, is very uh, thoroughgoingly consequentialist. Uh, the right thing to do is the thing that has the, the greatest economic surplus, the greatest balance of benefits over costs. And so if someone can show in Coase's framework that the benefit of a regulation to those who gain from it outweighs the cost uh, to those who are restricted by it, then it's, it's a good regulation. And libertarians don't find that a, a congenial message. But I think if you're a, a true John Stuart Mill libertarian, government can't restrict me except to prevent undue harm to others, then you've got to buy into that. It's very hard to, to oppose philosophically the claim that the right set of laws is the one that mimics the, the agreements that free people would have reached had it been possible for them to negotiate with one another. Yeah, well, I may disagree with some of that, but um, yeah, I'd be eager to, yeah. to see some examples <laughs> that, that you wouldn't buy into. But having said that, uh, I think all. The, oh, oh, could you just restate for the non-philosophical among us the distinction? Because it's a phrase you might want to use again: the difference between deontological and consequentialist. The deontologists, uh, the school in moral philosophy, uh, by that name. They say that there are certain principles that have to be followed irrespective of the surrounding costs and benefits. Uh, and they'll admit that costs and benefits matter, that, that they're also to be considered, but there are certain bedrock principles you have to follow, even when the costs and benefits seem to point in the other direction. Uh, the, the consequentialists, by contrast, they say that the right thing to do is the thing that produces the best overall consequences. That's where the, the tough part comes in is how you measure consequences. But the, in cost-benefit terms, it would be in econo-speak, 
it would be the option that produces the greatest economic surplus, the greatest surplus of benefit over cost. So while both of us are fans of Coase, and I, I don't know which of us likes them more, um, you you also you mentioned in your in your uh, book that deontological issues are inevitable and matter to almost everybody. So, for example, uh, you might not like uh, when I'm critical of of some government policy that you agree with, but you recognize that there's a virtue of free speech. And you put that above any of the cost benefits that might uh, accrue to, say, stopping me from being critical of some regulation, correct? No, no, that that would not be an example I would point to. I, I would say that free speech is uh, very easily defended <laughs> in consequentialist terms. Well, it's that, okay. That there is enormous benefit from each of us being able to speak freely. Uh, the, I don't have to enumerate what the benefits are, but they're enormous. And yes, there's harm. Uh, you call me a fool. Uh, that makes me feel bad. There's harm to me uh, from free speech. But but if we tried to write a, a law that would micromanage the, the speech of individuals and filter out the harmful speech and let, let the good stuff through, it would be a, a fool's errand, really. You could never hope to fine-tune it in that way. And so we just say... Uh, except in extreme cases, you can say whatever you want. I mean, you, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. There are limits. Uh, but no, the defense of broad free speech rights is a thoroughgoingly consequentialist notion. You could say the deontologists are on board with that too, and of course they are. And, and uh, interestingly, the deontologists reach exactly the same conclusions as the consequentialists in 99% of the cases. Well, Bob, it sounds like you're calling me a fool now, but I certainly would never, I would never call you a fool. But I would say, I, I, I did misinterpret evidently the, the example in your in your book, and I apologize. Uh, it does show you how these concepts tend to bleed together. At least I think. Let's right. take it. Let's take a different example from your book, which I will not interpret. I'm going to let you interpret it. That might help. Um, this classic case of uh, you use the setting you use as a a botanist wanders into a, a jungle. Uh, village uh, and is told if he will shoot one person, uh, they'll spare another nine. Is that is that a good example? That's one that's often used to to illustrate the purported moral blindness of consequentialism. The the consequentialist is supposed to say when confronted with that example that uh, well, I guess it's better that one person die than than that all all ten die. So. You, you should shoot the, the innocent victim. Uh, the deontologists say, no, you just can't go there. Uh, to kill is wrong, and you don't do that. You could construct very complicated consequentialist arguments that would get you to the same spot, but yes, that's meant to, meant to be a, a, a case that illustrates the, the moral blindness of consequentialism. Do you have a case that illustrates the moral blindness? I guess by definition, it's hard to illustrate the moral blindness of deontologists. Yeah, I, I think a creative consequentialist, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's broad latitude when you think in, in cost benefit terms to, to come up with plausible ways of measuring costs and benefits so that you could say the thing that we all believe is morally wrong is in fact, uh, producing bad consequences overall. That, that's in fact, I think why the one, one, this is an aside really to our main topic, but the, the question's always been interesting to me. Why do the deontologists feel so contemptuous 
of the cost-benefit analysts, of the consequentialists. And I think it's because there's such flexibility in in making cost-benefit estimates that if, if you're a person trying to decide what to do, can I do this thing that I want to do that's going to cause harm to others? That's the classical moral question. Uh, you're the person making the estimates of the relevant costs and benefits, and there's usually enough wiggle room in the, the material we have to work with that you'll figure out a way to say, yeah, it's okay to do this thing I want to do. So, so I think there may be an implicit belief that if you're a consequentialist, you can't really be trusted. Uh, I'm sympathetic. I'm sensitive to I'm that. Sympathetic to that worry. And I think uh, yeah, it's not that deontologists don't find ways to justify and rationalize. They do too. But I think you, it's easier to do that if you're a consequentialist. How does this tie in with utilitarianism? Well, utilitarianism is one form of consequentialism. It says the the best action is the one that results in the highest aggregate utility. Uh, the the more general form of consequentialism I favor is uh, economic surplus maximization. Uh, we don't try to add utility across people. We just try to take the, the the economic surplus that results and figure out how to make that as big as possible. But that's trickier than it sounds, is, and we'll talk about that in a sec. Before we do, I want to get to your example of um, – uh, interracial handholding. Use talk about how uh, that example plays out in your chapter. Well, I use that as an example to to take up the the supposed moral tone deafness of consequentialism. So so here here's the example. You've got an interracial couple in Atlanta in the 1960s, uh, and they want to hold hands when they walk downtown to go shopping. Uh, it's a mostly white city. Mostly uh, the the whites who would see them holding hands would be upset at the sight of it, and each would be willing to pay some amount to avoid the sight of it. Uh, you can imagine that the, the couple themselves want to hold hands and would be willing to pay uh, quite a bit more, each of them, for the right to hold hands, but there are so many more white people who are offended, each willing to pay a small amount that the total amount of offense caused by the sight of them holding hands would be greater than the amount they'd be willing to pay for the right to do it. And doesn't Coase then seem to say that, well, the right thing to do then is to say they can't hold hands. Uh, I think that's because, not— Because they can't—because it's too hard to negotiate the, the, to get they these couldn't, well, even hundreds if they of couldn't, people. Even if they could negotiate, uh, the, the outcome would be that they wouldn't hold hands because the white people would pool their funds and— compensate them for the injury that they felt by not holding hands. My point, though, is that because it is costly for all the white people to get together and make that come to that uh, position, decide who contributes how much. Right. It's then better. The rule should be just it, can't it's against hold the hands. law. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, I think I hope all, all your listeners would agree that's morally tone deaf. If if that's if that's what you think I can, only speak, says. I can only speak for myself and I, I agree with you. Go ahead. Yeah, let, let's <laughs> let's say arguendum that most of your listeners will say, well, that's obviously a morally tone deaf uh, position to take. Coase would not take that position. Uh, I think if you want to think about Coase, he would say, uh, look. We, we need realistic estimates of the various uh, injuries and gains involved here. 
seeing people hold hands causes injury to white people in the deep South in the 1960s. Okay. I, I, I was a college student in the deep South during that time. That, that sounds accurate to me. And I'll take as given the assumptions of the example that the offense to white people in the aggregate, even though not big for any, any individual would have outweighed the gains from holding hands to the interracial couple. But you have to ask, what if the law said you could hold hands? How would things evolve uh, in that context? And here I can report from the fact that I've been living in the North. I've raised four sons in Ithaca, New York. Uh, there are numerous interracial couples who live within a block of our house. They see interracial couples holding hands, uh, raising kids together, and experience no affective reaction whatsoever. That's, in fact, uh, a, a known consequence of, of humans in such environments. They adapt without any difficulty. And so if you said, uh, which way should the law be formulated? How will costs and benefits, the relevant costs and benefits, play out in the future? I think it would have been clear to anybody who posed the question that way that the the injury suffered by a couple who was told you can't hold hands. Well, they're not going to adapt to that. You're forever singled out as being different. You can't, uh, you don't have the rights that other people have. They're going to experience that injury may even intensify over time. But the, the people who were ruled against by the, the law that said you could hold hands, they, they adapt. They avert their eyes at first. Maybe they get used to it. Uh, there's no, lasting injury to them. And so I think co pure cost-benefit analysis favors a hands-off approach in that case. So to speak, as it were. Or, or rather, hands-on approach. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I think it's a bit of a stretch for me. I, I have to say, um, I might take you in a different direction. I certainly, I, my first thought is, I really don't care what the uh, cost-benefit is. I just think it's a person should have the right to hold the hand of the person next to them. And I'm happy to let some social norms evolve, which they did, of course. Uh, there was never a law, I don't think, against hand-holding. certainly wasn't enforced. But over time, whatever norms there were against it, they sort of eroded and, and went away, as you as you point out, in the North and in the South. But I, I would want to make a distinction, and maybe it's not an important one, but it's, it seems to, one, to be one for me. I want to make a distinction between psychic harm and, and physical harm. So the example you gave – for better or for worse, it's slightly complicated by the fact that it's it's psychic harm. Yeah. And a lot of, of – for reasons, again, it, they're sort of consequential. In both cases, both to the ostensible perpetrator Correct. and to the victim. Correct. And I think in these in, – in this case, the um, – one of the problems I have with it is probably consequentialist in some degree, which is I think it's hard to measure psychic harm. It's hard to be honest about psychic harm. So what – to me, that's sort of a Pandora's box. Once you start saying that you're allowed to uh, invoke things that annoy you, uh, I don't think that's the, a good road for society to go down. I want to give you a physical harm example that I've written about on at the Library of Economics and Liberty and get your reaction to it, which is this, which I think really brings out some of these, the moral issue as well. Uh, should you be allowed to steal somebody's car radio? Most of, most of us would say no. You shouldn't be allowed to steal somebody's car radio. Should be against the law. We could debate how many resources, how many policemen should be on the police, how big the police force should be on the street to, to deter theft, etc. Uh, the coast, wait to use coast, and he may or may not have liked this application, but uh, coast is um, 
way I use Coast to think about is, okay, Coast would say, well, what's the cheapest way to get people from not stealing other people's radios? It's immoral to steal somebody's radio. There's nothing reciprocal right. about it. It's not voluntary. It's it's um, it, it's a physical harm that's measurable. We might not be able to measure the size of the harm, how much, how, but we have a pretty good dollar measure of the cost to, to replace it. So if um, the cheapest way to replace – to reduce radio theft might be to not make it be illegal. You'd say, well, that's impossible. It can't – that could never be the case. And and I would make the claim, and I have some – I think some empirical evidence for it, that actually owners of radios prefer a world where it's it's legal to steal somebody's radio. Uh, and the answer is that – is your point in a different context, which is that over time uh, – Radio makers, manufacturers, car manufacturers will find ways to make it useless to steal the radio, and that's likely cheaper. In fact, I'm very confident it's cheaper than the cost of policing the streets and making sure you lock your car. And so the way that world evolved is that at first you removed your radio from the car. The manufacturer of the car had this innovation that when you left your car on the streets of Boston, because that was a place where the law clearly wasn't very well enforced, you pulled your radio out of your car and you went shopping and it's happened. I saw this in New York City. You'd walk around with your car radio. It had a tape player. It was expensive. And a lot of people found if they didn't do that, their cars were broken into. But ultimately, the car makers figured out a way to make a radio that didn't work outside the car. They solved the problem. It was very cheap. It wasn't free. They had to devote resources to it, et cetera. But I do think your insight that you have to look at how it plays out over time is crucial. Right. So I'm not sure where you come down on that example. Do you think it was a good thing that we, in effect, declared it legal to steal car radios? Yeah, I, I'm a deontologist. I, I I find my sympathies towards the deontology, right? I don't like utilitarianism. It gives me the creeps. And yet, I, in this case, I have to concede, and I learned this from Coase, that taking a consequentialist approach is pretty appealing. See, I think uh, I'm with you all the way with, on the importance of moral judgments and, and how critically important they are for keeping behavior within reasonable bounds in society. All that, all that is true, uh, and it's, it's, it's not in search of a consequentialist explanation. There are good consequentialist explanations for why groups that have moral norms and, and strong feelings about them uh, prosper uh, in competition against groups that are are less inclined. So I, I think nobody would really want to live in a society where property was free to be stolen under the law. That's just a bad society to live in. And if, if you say, well, all right, car radios are fair game, uh, as a practical matter, does that bleed into other forms of property? Can you really maintain uh, a, a sense of moral indignation about theft if theft is permissible in some cases, but but not in others. Yeah, I think all that's easy to to, to justify the idea of a, a a moral norm against theft. We don't really need to go deep into deontology to get that. It's a purely practical kind of prohibition. But do you think it was? Uh, I'll ask it a different way. For, for decades in major American cities, maybe not all of them, there were very few negative consequences to stealing a radio. It may have been illegal on the books, but it was not really enforced or it was too expensive to enforce. And I think Coase's insight, which is fabulous, is that that seems horrifying, but actually it turned out pretty well. 
if it's too expensive to enforce it, that's uh, a completely separate phenomenon. I mean, then then you're using consequentialist arguments for saying, well, the optimal level enforcement is going to be one that results in a lot of theft, and you adjust as best you can to that reality. And that's what people did, in fact. Do. But my claim yes, – is there. Uh, but my claim is that if you put the car owners in the room and the car owners aren't just car owners. They're also taxpayers and people who walk on the street and have to deal with crime, et cetera. If you said to them, you want to live in a world without where, – where it's okay to steal a radio or where it's not okay, you'd think they'd all should say, well, I want to live in a world where it's not okay to steal a radio. It turns out ultimately I think the right answer to that on a purely consequentialist approach is – as a car own a car radio owner, I'd prefer to live in a world where it's okay to steal one because that unleashes a set of incentives in response to theft that are cheaper than policing. Now I, I'm going to disagree with you there because I think there's there's a way to get everything you want without giving up anything, and that's to say, look, uh, I acknowledge that we don't have enough police to make it possible or practical to investigate thefts of car radios. That's that's just a practical problem we confront. Do we want to say it's okay to steal car radios? I would say no. Uh, stealing car radios is against the law. If a cop's standing there and sees you do it, he will arrest you. We're not going to develop costly patrols to go around and catch uh, car radio thieves because we've got other more important crimes to investigate. But we want to say it's immoral. We want to say it's illegal. And uh, if motorists and car makers know that as a practical matter, nobody's enforcing it, they will produce the the kind of private theft deterrent uh, strategies that you've described. And we get the outcome you and the car owners like as a second best. But we don't have to say it's okay to steal yeah, car. I didn't mean to be that provocative. I was being. I was trying to be provocative. I apologize. That was unclear. I just meant we don't need to make it illegal, and we shouldn't. We should just. In fact, again, I, I don't know if you've ever it had a illegal. What? I, think, I think the law should say, as a matter of of principle, that you shouldn't do that. And uh, that I don't it, agree. I think it should be a moral principle. If we catch you, if we catch you doing it, we'll put, punish you for doing it. But we don't. I mean, here's the. Uh, we should. We, we we would. Sure, if a cop was standing there and you stole my radio, of course he would arrest Not so sure. I'm not so sure. You know, scalping is illegal in most American cities. There's very few tickets. There are a lot of places you can make a scalping transaction in front of a policeman. They leave you alone. There you can argue that it should be legal. I agree. (laughs) As you'd expect. But But, but I think it's much harder to argue that stealing a car radio should be legal. You don't want to go there, Russ. No, the semantic distinction I'm making is that it shouldn't be illegal in the following sense. It should be immoral. We should tell our children not to do it. We should tell them it's wrong. We should we should inveigh against it when we when we have the chance. But if any if anyone here is listening, and you please feel free to send uh, to write the comments of this podcast, the time that you had your car radio stolen or your or your car broken into, or your iPod stolen on the subway, and you went to a policeman and said, "Hey, my 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 car radio was stolen," they said, "Yeah, what do you want me to do about it?" It's not just that they don't that it's too expensive to to staff the streets enough with enough police that they that they stop it, they're indifferent to it most of the time. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that they think it's legal. That doesn't mean they approve of it. That just means Close. there's nothing they can do about it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, now, to, to go move to a more controversial example about this overtime phenomenon, I, I want to come to an example. We, 
I don't think you and I have talked about it, but that's the example of a carbon tax. A lot yes. of a, a lot of economists have argued we should tax carbon to reduce global warming. And I think the Coast Perspective says that might be a good idea because obviously negotiation costs are enormous and we all can't get together and it, it, it's going to – it's just not going to happen. We have trouble doing it as nations uh, around the world. We've failed many, many attempts to, to restrict carbon because we have trouble breaking up the cost shares in a way that people are willing to, to accept these these restrictions. And the alternative is to do nothing and to let people adapt to this higher level of temperature, the higher levels of carbon in the atmosphere. And I think Coase would say it's an empirical question, which is the cheapest way to deal with it. Doesn't mean we can measure that. You can argue that it's a, it's a bad metric because it, it's a bad right. strategy because it's hard to measure. But I think Coase opens your thinking to that possibility. Yes, I, I, I quite agree. If you read the climate science literature, though, I think I think there's less ambiguity here than than many believe. Uh, the the science is inexact. That's the first thing that the climate scientists themselves will stress. That they have no no idea really where this is going exactly. What we know, though, is that every estimate that's come in has been dramatically more pessimistic than the one from a year ago, and. The, the best simulation model that we have, the MIT Global Climate Simulation Model, in a recent set of simulations estimated that by the end of this century, 20, by 2095, not even quite the end of the century, there's a 1 in 10 chance that we're going to see a, a, an increase in average global temperature by more than 12 degrees Fahrenheit. And and if, if that happened, 1 in 10... Uh, the, the model's uncertain, so it could be one in five, it could be one in three, it could be one in 20. We don't know, but uh, let's say, take their estimate at face value, one in 10. Uh, then we get 12 degrees increase, all the permafrost melts, all the methane, the, the billions of tons of methane are released into the atmosphere, each ton 50 times more powerful than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. That's essentially the end of life as we know it on the planet. So So the question really has to be, if there's, say, a one in ten chance that we're going to destroy our our entire future, is there any price that we can afford to pay that would eliminate that possibility? And and there, I think the estimates are pretty clear that a, a carbon tax that wouldn't be that onerous to adjust to would essentially eliminate that disastrous well, in, possibility. In that story, any carbon tax that doesn't reduce us to um well, any carbon tax is better than that. Uh, so again, I think Coast gives you again. I'm 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 making the point. I'm not making a point against the carbon tax. I'm making a point that Coast's insights gives you a way to think about this that is different than the standard ways that people think about, and it's provocative and interesting. What you've just said is, in your mind, the empirical evidence is overwhelming that the lowest cost solution to this problem is a carbon tax. Yes. I'm just raising the possibility that in other scenarios, and maybe this one, the one we're living in right now, um, maybe the cheapest thing to do is to adapt. Doesn't, yeah, new, not and new evidence could could lead me to endorse exactly that approach. Right. Um, it's a um, – but I think the contrasting view, the non-Cosian view is uh, either it's immoral to tamper with the Earth's atmosphere and so that we should always – 
try to reduce the amount of our impact on the environment is a different view. It's a legitimate view. Right. It's a deont- right. deontological view. And, and right. I think here's a place where my um, – again, I, I tend to – I find myself relentlessly drawn to the Kosian side even though in some cases – not this one necessarily, but in many cases, I, at first I'm very uncomfortable. And Coase forces you to, right. to deal with your discomfort. Yeah, and and that's that's a measure of the brilliance of his insight. Yeah, that he he just saw this in a clearer, different way than anyone had had put it up until him. Now, there's a big problem though with it, and you talk about it at some length, um, and that's the role of income. Uh, let's talk about this challenge, and this cuts across not just coast, but of course arguments in the favor of efficiency, cost-benefit analysis. Uh, what are typically called willingness to pay to see when we try to aggregate benefits across people. So uh, I agree with most of what you say in this area. I disagree with a little bit of it. Start – lay it out. What's the issue of income? Okay. When we were talking about the confectioner and the doctor, uh, income differences didn't have anything to say about what was, was the most efficient way to solve the problem. It was just – how much does the soundproofing cost? How much do you have to pay the movers to get the doctor to a new location? Compare those two dollar amounts and you know what the right thing to do is. Uh, Think about another noise example. Uh, Sarah wants to play her violin late at night and her neighbor doesn't like it. Uh, She's poor, so she'd be willing to pay $5 for the right to play till midnight. He's really wealthy. He doesn't mind the, the sound of her violin much. It doesn't even really disturb his sleep. Uh, if he wants to sleep, he just doesn't like. Nights, he he doesn't, just doesn't like Mozart. But he'd be willing to pay uh, ten thousand dollars to avoid an occasional moment when he would be inconvenienced by it. So, should his his view prevail? Uh, so people are offended at the idea that the fact that he has so much more money inflates his influence in the cost benefit analysis. We take her benefit, which is dependent upon her, her meager income and therefore small, or her benefit from playing late at night, the cost to him of playing late at night on a psychological meter would register almost imperceptible, but because he's so wealthy, we get a big number there. That's that's the, the offensive uh, part of cost-benefit analysis that causes people to object to its use. But if you, that's, if you that's really embedded, asked... That's embedded in the Coase analysis. Yes. What agreement would they reach if they could negotiate with one another? Ask that question, and then the cost-benefit analysis gives you exactly the the answer to the question. Uh, She values playing late at night a lot in psychological terms, perhaps, but only a little in monetary terms because she's poor. That means he could pay her an amount that would more than compensate her for not playing at night, She'd be happier than before if he paid her that amount. He'd be happier than before to have paid it because he didn't like the noise uh, and he'd be free from it then. So everybody would be better off. That, that's, that's why the solution identified by the Coast Framework is the right solution. Now, what if you can't implement it? What if you can't implement the transfer? Should you do it anyway? That's an interesting question. Yeah, and I- Usually... Usually, these are very small dollar amounts. Uh, my only claim is that we should use coasts and not worry about the transfers whenever it involves small dollar amounts, just on the, the reasoning that you win some, you lose some. On average, you come out way ahead. So 
It's like somebody offers you a chance to flip a coin, heads you win $10, tails you lose a dollar. Well, I'll flip that coin a million times if you want. Sure, I'll lose a dollar once in a while, but overall, I'm better off taking that set of bets than than not. And if we apply this coast rule to a thousand different policy decisions, each one of which has a small effect on on any individual's well-being, then you come out ahead whether you're rich or poor. But I, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating point. The point that, uh, and I love the way you think about. It. I've never heard it discussed that way. That you want to. You want the policy, the assignment of, of liability or the assignment of property rights to mimic what they would do anyway. The problem I have with that is that, as you point out, they don't make those side payments necessarily after the fact because – and that's Coase's point. So right. if you care about um, – I, I think you, you're, you're pushed to argue that you should – in that case, again, you can't – here's the real problem is you can't really legislate general legislation that that's – unaffected by these income differences. That is, not all violinists are poor and not all listeners are wealthy. So, But in this particular case, if I put that to the side, the general generality challenge, if I care about the um, these income differences, I'm pushed towards saying and – and if I think the negotiation transfer problems are challenging, I'm pushed towards saying that she should have the right to play. If he wants to try to compensate her and he can, great. She'll be better off. But but that we should start there giving her the property right rather than him because of this disparity. See, we don't do that though. I mean we say you can't yeah. we can't you can't honk your horn in front of a hospital at two o'clock in the afternoon. Why is that? Well, uh it's because there are people up there who've just had surgery who need to sleep and the value to you of honk your horn is probably less than the value to them of the quiet that they'd have if you didn't honk it. You can honk your horn if you're a mile from the hospital. That's not a problem. But the noise ordinances really do try to ask what agreements the people would have reached if, if they could negotiate with one another. Of course, it's not practical for a patient to run down and bribe a motorist not to honk his horn. I'm trying to rest. That's that's obviously absurd. So we, we say, all right, on average, uh, the motorists are going to suffer less if they can't honk here then the patients are going to suffer if we allow them to. I'd, so, I'd, so, so basically, if I'm a poor person and somebody says we should use cost-benefit analysis, what am I worried about? I'm worried about that, well, the standard argument is that it gives too much influence to the rich. And sometimes the rich want different things from what the poor want. And so if that's the objection, and there are thousands of different little decisions that are going to be affected – then we can we can solve that by saying, all right, we're gonna we're gonna tax the rich a little bit more and and raise the earned income ta- tax credit a little bit, and that'll that'll make up for the fact that we're using cost benefit na- analysis now to decide how to do all these little policy questions instead of some other rule. Yeah, I, I'm just making the point that I think this again brings out my uh, my deontological side, and I'm gonna throw in a twist, which is is that. I'm more – I'm tempted to say – well, my first thought is social norms determine whether people play loud music at night, and those are probably the best ways to deal with it. But a lot of times those norms don't work so well in this in these kind of settings, and we should probably – does a person have a moral right to play the violin at, at 3 in the morning? No, probably not. Do they have the right to play Mozart at 2 in the afternoon, even if you hate Mozart? And I'd say absolutely yes, and I don't really care about the um, – the cost-benefit analysis because I'm worried about these income uh, discrepancies that might 
Although I noticed that what your intuitions told you is exactly what the Kosian analysis would have said. Is that true, though? What about sure. the what about the case where, uh, no, but not the case where she where she's poor and he. The example you started with, I don't think it gets there. Well, no, I mean you 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 don't want to focus on one rich listener and one poor violinist. Violinists are are of all parts of the income scale, and so are listeners. So so there. The, the the reason for the rule is that in the afternoon, most people are not trying to sleep. Most, most people who have something to do that would make noise are doing it during those hours. So, so the harm for saying you can't do it would be greater in the afternoon. The gain to the listener uh, who's not offended by the noise would be smaller then because he's not trying to sleep. So you say, all right, it's okay in the afternoon, but late at night, no, not okay. So the only other point I want to add, though, is that all of our discussion so far leaves out the the role that the apartment owner can play. So the apartment owner can say, this is a noisy apartment. Uh, anybody who lives in my apartment can play their music anytime at night. And, of course, that we have evolved, just like my car radio case, we've evolved mechanisms for people to avoid listening to other people. They're cheap. They're called head, right. headphones or earbuds or whatever. Right. And um, it's the same thing with secondhand smoke. People who are offended by secondhand smoke, my, my view is start a restaurant that doesn't allow. And, of course, many people did. Many bars did. They don't allow smoking. And uh, it worked out fine. But it seems to me the idea that you ban smoking in a city is wrong, period. Yeah, there, there the question of harm to others gets more subtle. This might be a good point to, to – finish up on because I think uh, it really gets at some of the differences that you and I probably would, would not be willing to walk away from so easily. So, so talk to smokers. Uh, they've, they've been interviewed many times. 93, 95% say they wish they'd never started smoking in the first place. They, they regret having taken up the habit. Uh, I've never met a single person who said, I really hope my kid grows up to be a smoker. That, that that would be, I think, seen by most people as an utterly bizarre view to hold, but I've never met anybody who held it. So what explains whether your kid becomes a smoker? Uh, I became a smoker as a teenager. I grew up uh, in the 50s and 60s. Probably 65% of men in America smoked then, and the best predictor of, of whether you'll smoke is whether your friends smoke, and my friends did, and so I started smoking. I, I quit a few years after I started, but, uh, I've, I've raised four sons. They're all adults now and none of them is a smoker. I'm, I'm grateful to report, but I'm, I'm be willing to bet my whole retirement account that at least two of them would be smokers if they'd grown up when I grew up. And the only difference is that most people don't smoke now. It's something like 19% of Americans smoke now compared to the 60 some percent when I was a, a teenager. And, that's a huge benefit for me to have been able to raise my kids in a way that they didn't become smokers. Uh, and so when, when you're a smoker, do you cause harm to others? Well, the, the mere fact of adding one more to the, the, the list in the, the numerator that, that you use to calculate the ratio of smokers in the population increases the likelihood that every other person who's not yet a smoker will become one. So the, the answer is uh, unequivocally yes, that you cause harm to others by being a smoker. And then the question is, does, does the population have any legitimate right to ask you to rein in? Uh, 
I, I don't think we have the right to say you can't become a smoker. But what we did do, and what I think we were right to do, was to tax cigarettes heavily. And, and that was the main reason that smoking became so much, much less prevalent. It's a fantastic. You have to tax something anyway, so uh, That's a fantastic, why not tax cigarettes? It's a fantastic example. Let me counter, and then you can have the last word, okay? Um, first of all, I've never smoked in my life. Uh, anything. I've never put anything smoking in my into my uh, system. So uh, I'm sympathetic to the basic point. I, I've never smoked a cigar, of course, according to this, according to my claim. And I could imagine a cigar smoker who savors it, hoping that their kids grow up to be a cigar smoker. But I, I assume he meant cigarettes. <laughs> and I think, yeah. and I, and I certainly agree with you. Nobody wants their kids, even as pleasurable as some people might find smoking. I think most of them do agree that it was it's a it's a bad habit. It's a habit they wish they hadn't acquired, and they don't wish it on their kids. In my case, actually, my father was a very heavy smoker. He smoked uh, two to three packs a day, and I immediately decided that it was a hard. I hated it. I didn't like the smell of it, and it made me a non-smoker. So there was a positive externality from smoking. But I take your point that in most cases, smoking creates a, a sympathy for it, a cultural norm that that encourages people to do it. Having said that, I don't want the government to intervene in the way that you suggest, even though I accept all your points, because I worry about them doing it in cases where it's not very helpful or where it's advancing some special interest. I agree in the abstract, certainly in a family, uh, it's a good point. I don't want anybody in my family smoking. None of, no, nobody does. But to allow the power of the state, here's, I think, our fundamental disagreement, which we've – and I just want to say to listeners um, – Bob Frank is one of the few guests who encourages us uh, to debate, to, to exchange. So this is a different kind of conversation. Some of our past ones have been literal debates. So I talk more in these, and I that's at Bob's encouragement. Thank you, Bob. That's one of the reasons you get invited back. Uh, but seriously, uh, so I, I just want to make that clear that this sparring, verbal sparring we're doing here and exchanging of ideas is a little different than the average econ talk episode. So I, I take your point. I'm worried about the role of the state. I don't think the state does what – I don't think the state in general enforces bargains that we would like to enforce ourselves. And I think there are differences among us that the state is going to often ignore. I think we need to be vigilant against state overreach myself. Here, here. <laughs> um, oh, but the last thing I wanted to say, uh, and then, then I'll let you have the last word as promised – the last thing I want to say is I don't think it's the tax on cigarettes that that is what stopped us from smoking. Uh, it was a complicated and, of course, many times a high tax and just encourages smuggling uh, into New York City and elsewhere that have high taxes. But I think the real thing that stopped it was a set of cultural norms that changed. And I think government had a role to play in it. I don't mean to suggest that it didn't. But I think, it, if anything, the smoking and other social movements that, that have led to strong change in your and my lifetime, such as littering, which when I was a kid was common and acceptable, or at least not as now it's 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 horrifying to people to litter. When I was a kid, people did it all the time. It was common. Right. And I think those things change. Government often plays a role, whether that's decisive or not, open question. Go ahead. You get the last word. Yeah. Sometimes social norms are effective and the cheapest way to solve the problem of what to do about activities that cause harm to others. Absolutely. Uh, and sometimes they're they're not sufficient to to get at the incentives that are driving people to engage in those behaviors. So I think it's really uh, a a practical question up for debate, case by case. Uh, and I think 
if people would approach questions like that in that spirit, that would be terrific. Instead, what we see is assertions, uh, unsupported assertions of inalienable rights to do certain things with no with no reference to where do these rights come from? How much does it cost to, to grant people these rights and to enforce them? How much damage is done by the behavior that the rights enable? Those questions are, are properly part of the discussion, I think. My guest today has been Bob Frank, Cornell University. His book is The Darwin Economy. Bob, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Always a pleasure, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.